0: Blessed Father, we do ask that you would search us today, that you would cause us to look at our lives in relation to you, and that you would, with the grace that is true to you, search our hearts and point us to the areas where we need to be reflecting and processing and repenting. As we open up your word, Father, we ask that you would lead us in truth. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself in such a way to us, Lord. Amen. Our reading today is going to be from two Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. So two verses. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. And Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, I believe it's a Chinese proverb or a curse that says, may you live in interesting times. Okay, And and the idea was that the total opposite of joy and happiness is to live in interesting times. Um, I know Terry Pratchett uh, wrote a book, May You Live in Interesting Times, but that's a totally separate thing. So this, this idea of interesting times, I'm pretty sure we can all agree that we do live in interesting times. We live in... Uh, a state of constant flux and change. Um, the temperature doesn't know what it's doing. Uh, I heard little birds tweeting out a couple of days ago. My wife, the, so last week Sunday, my wife was like, it's it just, she smelled spring. And I'm like, Woo the next day birds were tweet- tweeting. The next day, uh, not tweeting. Well, I suppose maybe they were tweeting, like on their phones, like, this is cold. Um, it was, and then it's just this cold, and, it, and it's just, it's chaotic. We've got financial issues, we've got work issues, but we also have this swirl of identity and gender politics, right? We have this idea of, um, so I'm going to make a joke, and it might be a bad joke, but it's a joyful joke, and I thought about it this morning, and I have to share it, right? Do you know the expression, I'm coming out of the closet? Okay. I'm identifying, and I'm coming out as a closet, Okay, I know, maybe not my best, um, if I've ever had a best joke. We, we, are, we are living with this idea and this narrative, and, and, and if you tell people, otherwise you are a bad person, that I can identify as I want, how I want. And, and, and this idea of who I am is such a strong message at the moment, certainly in the West. I am this, and you can't tell me otherwise. I am this. I am this. I am this. So, to quote Foo Fighters, for those who don't know, Foo Fighters, go and check them out, or, or maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But Foo Fighters, say, uh, one of his songs says, "I have a confession to make. I have a confession to make." And and the confession I have to make today is that I I have ADHD. All right, and I'm going to tell you how this all fits in. But I have ADHD. For those who don't know what it is, it's attention deficit hyper disorder. Okay. Attention deficit hyper disorder. And what that means is that I'm hyperactive. Now you wouldn't say it looking at my physique. But if you ever have ever have a conversation with me, my brain is in 50 million places all at once. So, for example, when I, when I meet with a very good friend of mine, he's also got ADHD, and I think his is a little bit worse, right? Uh, and I'm totally unmedicated. Like, who needs medication? Let's just enjoy the ride. When we have a conversation, and we meet, when we meet regularly to, to have coffee and to pray, we will talk about seven different things within the space of five minutes and not finish one conversation. All right? Another uh, uh, way my my, my ADD works, ADHD works. When I came to to this church uh, for the first sort of first, I started part time in March 2019, Um, and we had a a council retreat. And this this retreat, we had to we began with this exercise of building this um, kind of grand tower, and the one who who won, or the one who got the highest won. And the guy, I'm like, okay, what are the rules? Because, you know, you've got to find every loophole you can to, to to win, right? And if they tell you these five rules, then that means the sixth is not a rule, so you can go and do whatever you want. So we did this, and the two people on my team, I was new, so they were like, okay, we're going to do this, and I just sat back going, okay, fine, what do you want me to do? I'll just look pretty. Uh, that comes naturally to me. And uh, we finished this, and then afterwards we We had the whole session and we started praying. And as we started praying, my mind started thinking. And yes, we've been speaking about missions, and Gavin is just praying with this fervor. And I'm thinking, but hang on, if I had to tip the table over, he didn't say we can't do that. If we had to tip the table over, we could have strapped the thing as part of the base that would have given some solidarity. Therefore, and Gavin's like, Lord, may these people come to know Jesus. And my brain is everywhere but where it should be. So now the question is, the question is, does this ADHD define me? Is it a part of my identity? And it's, it's a tricky question. I'm not going to give you a yes or no. The reality is that it is something of who I am, but it is also something gratefully that is temporary, right? Because one day I'm going to die. I'm going to be with Jesus. And um, he is going to be so beautiful that it doesn't make a difference if I take my ADHD with me. I'm going to be looking at him going, man, you're just amazing. I can't get enough of you can't get enough of you. But in this life, how much do I let it inform who I am? Because it is a challenge that I have. And so I have to be asking, and so if I tell you, listen, I've got ADHD, you might have a perception and go, Andrew is this. So you might put me in a box. That's the one problem. You might put me in a box and go, Andrew um, is this sort of person there for. Uh, Andrew did this because of. But if I am open about it, it helps you guys understand who I am and celebrate the complexity of Andrew in a variety of ways. If I help people understand who I am from this perspective, and I don't want to use it as a crutch, but I also need to understand that this is who I am. This is the challenge with identity, right? Because I'm not only one thing. I'm not only a person that struggles with ADHD. I'm also a father. I'm a husband. I'm a friend. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm incredibly good-looking. All of these things inform who I am. And the the challenge with all of these things is to find a way to bring them in in a way that the right things, these right components, are the, 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 the guiding principle as opposed to the wrong things. So, for example, I'm a pastor. And if that becomes my predominant way of defining myself, my family suffers. My relationships with other people suffer. My relationship with God suffers. And so I have to make sure that I am holding on to the right building blocks for my sense of identity. I need to make sure that I'm focusing on the right mix. And it's difficult, and there are times and seasons where, you know, you, you kind of wonder and you, you go off the path, and you come back. But, but we've got to understand what are the right building blocks. And this is what I think 1 Peter 2 shows us, is the right building blocks of who you are in Christ. Who you are. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Just the flow of 1 Peter uh, to this point, where, where we get to where, where Peter is, is looking at these two verses, um, or we are looking at these two verses of Peter, is that you begin in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, where it speak where Peter says, God has caused us, God has caused us to be a living, uh, to be born to a living hope. God has caused this fundamental change that we are now focused on, Man, I, I've been born to a living hope. 1 Peter 1.13, this hope should cause us to focus on the grace coming when Jesus returns. Or the grace to come. Jesus is coming back, folks. And he's coming back. And when he comes back, it is going to be a time of further grace and mercy. Because then we are going to receive the fullness of what he has accomplished. 1 Peter 1 verse 15 and 17. In the meantime, we are to pursue a reflective and corresponding holiness. And live with fear amidst this world. And when I mean a reflective and corresponding holiness, Peter takes from from the Old Testament, he says, uh, where God says, I am holy, you must be holy. So in the context of this world, while you wait for Jesus to come back, live unto God correspondingly and reflecting who God is. And do so in the context of this world with fear. And we're not talking about fear as in we need to be afraid of the power of the world. Rather, if we are to be holy, if we are to be reflecting who God is, we are to not want to be defiled by this world. And then in 1 Peter 1 verse 22, he then speaks about what it means to be like God. And that is to be loving God's people. So he, he says you've been born to this new hope. Man, you've, you've got to live in this world. Jesus is coming back, but you've got to live in this world. And when you live in this world, love your." brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And the emphasis there is on the Christian community. Love each other. But then in 2 Peter 2 verse 1, he says, don't do this. So he says in, in 1 Peter 1 do this, but don't do this. Love people, your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, but do not repeat the broken patterns or the destructive patterns of broken people. Because these people slander, they deceive, they 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 break down. So Jesus, so, so you've been born to a living hope. But folks, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Now while you wait, live in this world. Reflecting God, which is loving people, and fearing this world. Not, not afraid of the world as in that it's going to be too strong, but avoiding contamination. And that means we, we have got to be... Moving away from destructive habits. And then in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, God is in the process of transforming us. Building us up into priests to serve. So while you live in this world, do this, avoid this, because God is transforming you into priests. God is transforming you. Now, for us to understand 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 10, I want to kind of give this picture. And what I've done is I've broken up the verse, or the two verses, into sort of four categories. Focused on four key phrases. And we have the two phrases, if you'll see there in um, the first session, uh, but you are. A chosen race. You are. So the first phrase that we look at is you are. And this is a statement of identity. God is saying to you, you are this. You want me to describe you? You are this. You want me to help you understand what it means to be born again to Jesus and what change it's going to result in you and how you've got to understand yourself? Well, this is you. You are. You are. And we see that repeated twice. Peter is emphatically describing you and me. When we have been born or caused to be born to a living hope. The second phrase of importance is that, that you may. So you are, and there's a description, that you may. This is the outflow or the result of who we are. And we will get back to that later. But there is this purpose or this outcome that that Peter is trying to explain to us. And the final phrase is you have, which captures again the great work that we are recipients of. That you have mercy. And why I've grouped uh, point two and four together is because it speaks about proclaiming the excellencies of God, um, uh, the excellencies of him who called you out. So there's this, this idea of grace And again, mercy and fall. And so we've got these two statements of you are because you have and therefore proclaim. You are because you have and therefore you proclaim. So what does this all mean? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. And Peter is combining, in all probability, combining two different Old Testament verses here. The first one is Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You will be my treasured possession. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see the repetition there? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We even see the the idea of uh, own possession. You are the treasured possession. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is your identity. And then it goes on to Isaiah 43 verse 21, the people who who I formed for myself, that is this idea of my treasured possession, or my possession, people for my own possession, if you look over there, people for his own possession. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praises. That they may proclaim the excellencies of him. And the context Of, of If we go back to here, the context of Exodus is that they had just been liberated from Egypt. They had been taken out by God's strong, mighty hand. God had done incredible works to display his sovereignty over the false gods of Egypt. And had taken people who had been for some time in captivity and slavery at the mercy of these people. He liberated them and says, listen, in the context of you being liberated, I need you to know who you are. I need you to know what I pulled you out of Egypt to be. What I want you to look like. Because you've been in captivity, you've been in slavery. Well, now you're free. Let me show you who you are. And this was the beginning of them entering into a covenant partnership with God, where God says, I am, and you are. I will, and you will. And if I don't, which with God never happens, but if you don't, so I am God, the sovereign King." You are my covenant partners. You are my treasured possession. You are my chosen people. You are my my royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. That is who you are in this covenant. And this is what I will do. I will provide for you. I will rescue you. I will provide a, a way of redemption for you. In the sacrificial systems. I am a benevolent, kind, and gracious God. And you will love and serve me. But if you don't, here are the curses. And if you keep failing in those curses, I'm going to send you into exile. And that is the context of this verse. Because it is from exile that Isaiah is speaking. And he's saying, you were sent into exile because of your continued disobedience as covenant partners. But do not worry. The promise of redemption from exile is yours because of God's grace and forgiveness. And that is contained again in the covenant and curses, the blessings and curses in the covenant, if you read in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, and I think 31. So this, this, this incredible verse is coming in the context of we're in exile because of our sin and brokenness and we have not redeemed ourselves and yet God is calling to form for himself a new people that are going to declare his praises because before that they couldn't wait to run to all the other gods. But now, now, now we want to be saying man is not God good. God is great. He has formed me. He has made me. He has has redeemed me. Let me tell you how good he is. This phrase, uh, who called us, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there is this movement from darkness into light, which was a common idea in Old Testament. And also resonates with the history of the ten plagues. And we see again in Isaiah 42 verse 16, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. So God is rescuing us from darkness into light. This is the Old Testament hope. We then see that Peter shifts Old Testament focus from Isaiah and Exodus to Hosea or Hosea. And the the background of Hosea is Hosea was a prophet, and and very early on in Hosea chapter 1, you you see God saying, uh, Hosea, I've got a wonderful task for you because, man, I I love you, and I love the people of Israel. I want you to go and marry um, not a beautiful wife, not a kind wife, no, an adulterous wife. I want you to marry an unfaithful wife. I mean can you can you imagine that eh? like no, what do you mean, Lord? No. Yes, you need to marry um an adulterous wife. And, and and then when you've married this woman, what's gonna happen is she's going to produce um three kids, two of the kids. Um I'm gonna tell you what to name them. And we're not gonna name her name them or a petal or flower or something nice. No, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the the Lord said to to him, call her name, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy in the house of Israel to give them at all. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I I, I call my little boy a lot of things like juice. um, I don't know why juice, we call him goopy. Um, Can you imagine? uh, Hey, no mercy. Come here. Come, come, come. You didn't pack away the dishes. No mercy. What did I tell you about this? I'm going to. Uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm going to have no mercy. No. I can't say I'm not going to have her mercy in you because then I'm going to. No. So what am I going to call you? No mercy. But this is what God called, told, told him to call his kids. And then the Lord said to him, You're going to have another son? Call his name, not my people. I mean, imagine going picking up your kid from preschool. Which one's yours? No, no, not that one. No, no, not my people. No, 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 no. Yes, no, not that. Yes, that one. No, not, not, not my people. I mean, can you imagine how weird it is? Call him not my people, for I am not your God. And yet in Hosea, there is this reversal where it says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And so there is this reversal of relationship or reversal of state. Because they have no mercy and they are not my people. And God in his redemptive nature says, let me go and buy back. And I would encourage you to go and read the story of Hosea. Because it is a beautiful story where she eventually goes into cultic prostitution. And Hosea wins her back. Not because she deserves it. Because Hosea is... A type or a representation of how God wins back his unfaithful. So these children were a foreshadow of God's marriage to Israel just as Gomer's future adultery was a foreshadow of the adultery of the people of, it, of Israel. So these are our building blocks. And we're going to try and look at our building blocks. So the building blocks of our identity is that, first of all, we are called and chosen. We are called and chosen. This idea of being called and chosen is the beginning of Peter's epistle, where he says, you have been called, and you have been caused to be born to a new and living hope. And the emphasis here is on God as the prime agent and cause for this fundamental shift. None of you have chosen God. Accepting he chose you first. None of you have. Not one person in all of creation can say, out of the freedom of my own heart, grappling my own sin and the own tendencies that I have to put myself on the throne, can I say that I was the one who began the conversation with God. It is God himself who causes us to look at him and go, man, I really need to take this this mud out of my eyes, um, the filth out of my heart, and respond to God. And even that intention is because God is working in us. And this this, this has historical continuation for the Jewish mind, because they knew that they were God's chosen people. The, The Jews knew that they were God's chosen people. But what did this mean for the Gentiles? Because the Gentiles were never part of God's people in the Old Testament unless they rejected everything and identified. And so, for the concept for them as chosen people, was a new idea. For them to be considered as God's chosen was a new thought. And that means that they had no room for arrogance as they saw the Jews struggle with this. And we see Paul writing about this in Romans. But it also means that the status of being part of the chosen race, and I'm sure that's got loaded terms with with old Hitler over there, um, but the status of being part of that chosen race and being part of God's people meant that the Gentiles had an equal standing with the Jews. You are chosen, and you are chosen, and both of you have equality in this. It doesn't make a difference your background. It doesn't make a difference your background. You are here because I have chosen you, and you belong. And if you're a male, so what? If you're a female, so what? You belong here because I've brought you here. If you're Hispanic, if you're Spanish, if you're Greek, if you're. Zulu, if you Corsa, I mean, the only one that I have an issue with is Australians. But I mean, apart from that, you are here not because of what you bring, but because I have chosen you. And these categories are plural, not singular. It's not about you. This isn't about you sitting here going, I'm chosen by God. You are chosen to belong to us. And so there's a plurality in this identity. We find who we are in the context of community. We are not saved because God wanted to rescue you and you alone. And therefore you are the pinnacle of his redemptive work. The church is. We are not only called and chosen, we are recipients of mercy. In a culture where success, achievement and merit Plays a big role. Peter's use of Isaiah points to the sheer grace of God. The sheer grace of God. You have warranted nothing in God's call. And yet, God looks at you and says, I'm giving you my son. And you don't deserve it. And I'm not selfish in pouring out my son for you. You don't warrant it. And you will never warrant it. But I'm giving him to you. And when I'm giving him to you, I need you to understand. I'm giving him to you so that he may face my anger for your sin. And boy, I do not like sin. And he's going to face all of that for you. I love you. That's what God says to us. And the emphasis on grace and is that this grace moves us into a confidence in God's declaration of who we are. And in this regard, grace and mercy are interchangeable. And I want to give you a picture. There's a a movie that came out that my daughter loves. It's all about singing called Annie. Um, I think there's been a couple of versions of it. Um, The opposite of Annie um, is Oliver Twist, right? Now, Oliver Twist There's this famous scene. It's the only scene I remember from Oliver Twist. I remember watching it. Uh, vaguely. It was kind of boring because it was sad. There was no explosions. There was no robots. There was no fighting. But I remember the one scene where Oliver Twist comes in and, and uh, is in this uh, boarding house or orphanage or whatever, and um, he's hungry, and they give him a bowl, and then he comes back, and everyone's flabbergasted that he would do this, and he comes back and he says, please, sir, can I have some more? Um, probably did a bad accent there, but that scene of, please, sir, can I have some more? And, and everyone's just flabbergasted and, and I don't remember the rest of the scene. I think he didn't get the food. Okay. But the point is that the, the, this whole culture there was, man, you, you, you're in this house, but you can't ask for food. You, you, you're a you're nothing, and you'll be grateful for what, what little you get. Whereas um, the new version of Annie, um, I think it's a new version, um, is where uh, Jamie Foxx uh, um, acts as a dude, and, and he, he adopts this girl, and this girl is supremely confident. And she takes advantage um, of all the, the wealth that he has. And in this regard, we are meant to be more like Annie than we are meant to be like Oliver Twist. We are not meant to, to be recipients of mercy and then say, oh, please, sir, uh, please, God, can I have some more? We are to with joy and abandon and boldness go, Lord, your mercy for me has been established on the cross. It is historical. It is historical. Nothing can erase it. And I am brought into this relationship based on mercy. Therefore, I'm going to have confidence in that mercy. So not only we are called and chosen, or not only we are recipients of mercy, we are also royal priests. And there are two aspects of being priests that we need to consider. First of all, a priest was one with exclusive access to the presence of God. Just, just focus on that. A priest had access to the presence of God. I mean, that was their joy and that was their duty. And as a nation of priests, they had degrees of intimacy with God. Certainly, or access to God. Certainly, um, Aaron is the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies, but they were all to a degree to enter into the presence of God. And this access was the distinctive aspect of Israel in relation to other nations. Folks, you are defined not by your high walls and by your chariots. You're not defined by your good looks and your wealth. You are defined that you are able to sit with me, the God of all creation. And therefore, Christians today should be marked by long, long times in communion with God. The second was the priest who had the function of serving God. And we see this idea in 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Serving God was to just generally serve God, to to kind of go, Lord, I'm available. What do you need me to do? I will serve you. It also has the, the tone of mediating between God and people particularly those who are not in a relationship. We are to be priests, mediating. And mediating means that I come between two people to help them. I I, I am used by God to, to be his ambassador to people who do not know him. People who are struggling, people who are, I mean, there are people who know him but who are downcast for good reasons. And we mediate for them. We come between them and God so that we may help them knowing that it is God using us. And this aspect of our identity is both passive and active, meaning we we walk into the presence of God and we enjoy the fact that we are just there. There's this passive enjoyment of what God is, but then there is also active, that we serve. We serve. We serve God by serving people. And this is not reserved for clergy and ordained. The fact that I'm a pastor does not mean that I have to say grace at every function because then all of a sudden our food is more holy. If I offer to say grace, it's because I want to say the grace quickly and get my mouth in around that food. But there is nothing holy about my prayers in relation to yours. I mean, maybe a little bit more, but but I mean, that's just because I'm a nice guy. There is nothing distinct about me in relation to you excepting maybe you access God more or maybe I access God more. And that's more of choice than it is about status and availability and access of it. So not only are we royal priests, we're also a holy church. Now, we are not a nation, so I've chosen the phrase from a holy people to a holy church or a holy nation to a holy church because I think that this is, we know that, that in Acts, God spread the church out to be among the nations. And this concept of being holy is one being set apart and of distinction. It has some moral tones, like holy as in um, morally good, but it generally means holy is in distinct and separate for the service and use of god you are holy because you are set aside and you are distinct and different from this world you are not meant to reflect this world and our commitment to god must reflect his holiness and the manner um, and that manner in a naturally evident way we are meant to to be so in tune with god that our 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 service to him, our holiness, our set aside to him is just a natural outflow. And we see this in, in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, where he says, you are the salt and you are the light. You are meant to be just shining and changing, but different from. You are also cherished children, a treasured possession. The idea of the, this idea of people for God's own possession is emerging of Isaiah 43, 21 and Exodus 19, verse 6. And the ancient Near Eastern culture, a personal treasure was also used to convey, when it spoke about people being personal treasures, because the king was the personal treasure of, of the God, or, um, was, was to convey the idea of a servant serving, and particularly the son serving. So a king would look at his son and saying, you are my personal treasure because you are serving me. And this possession is one of adoption into the family unit where the father treasures the child and the child serves with gratitude and devotion. The father treasures the child, delights it, rejoices it and the the child with gratitude serves and is devoted to not unwillingly but joyfully while we must never forget the type of relationship between god and his people father to children we must also remember the warmth of love and regard that god the, the warmth and love that god showers over us and this can be a challenge for some how many people genuinely feel like they are God's treasured possession? How many people feel in their core or believe that they and God just looks at you and says, man, you're a lack of person. I struggle. With We are also then to be gushing enthusiasts. God has called us and is transforming us so that we may proclaim his excellencies. We are to declare the great things he has done. Primarily, he's bringing us out of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Now, the key to understanding this is that this should not be considered a task um, to do, but a joyful celebration with people. So let me give you an example. There are certain things that if you have to ask me to advertise, man, I'm going to be like, oh, really, do I have to? There are certain things that you're going to ask me, Andrew, can you please talk to us about? And before you even finish the word, I'm, I'm out of the blocks and I'm telling you. One of them is coffee, right? If you ever come to my house, and my wife is, a few times we've had people at my house, my, my wife will, will walk into the, the kitchen and I'll be busy explaining about natural processed coffee and African coffee and altitude, and, and my wife just goes, why? Because she's heard this spiel from me all the time. It is not an effort for me, not an effort whatsoever for me to tell you about natural process coffee, African natural process coffee, single origin African natural process coffee. It's not, and it must be wa- not natural, natural not washed. I, it's, it's not a burden for me. I mean, it'll be a burden for you because you'll be like, man, Andrew, can we, can we can we can we can we wrap it out? Yeah, yes, just make it. And then when I'm like, I'm going to make it for you in this way, it's like 10 minutes, and then the coffee's like lukewarm. Uh, and my friend's like, dude, just, just give me just give me real coffee. And then it's like, I die inside, guys. But it's not, it's not a chore. It's not effort. It's not a waste of my time. I delight in it. Man, I can't wait to tell people about coffee. When I came to this church, I used a thing called Logos Bible Software. Um, and I am in love with this. I'm preaching from Logos Bible Software, right? If I could get paid even $1 for every time I speak about it, and, and, and when I came to the evening service the first, the first year that I was here, um, a couple of people were rolling their eyes at me because I was speaking about Logos Bible Software. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a difficulty for me. I, I, you don't have to beg me. You tell me how long, uh, add a couple of minutes extra, and I'm there without any effort. We should be like that with God. There should be no effort. And I'm talking generally. I understand that there are times and places where we are a bit more, um, I mean, some people can get up and preach and have no problem talking about God. And other people are a lot more reserved and they will struggle to be here. I'm not talking about you having to be here at a pulpit. I'm saying that there must be an enthusiasm to talk About what God has done in your life. And how that. Is manifest. Or how that happens. It doesn't have to be one way or other. But folks. Think about it. You are welcome. Into the presence of the living God. Clothed. In robes of majesty. Because you are clothed in the robes of Jesus. And as you sit with your father, he lavishes attention on you. He delights in you. He enjoys you. I'm pretty sure even God shakes his head when I tell my jokes. But I'm sure that there is an enjoyment of me that he has. And I, 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 I struggle to comprehend that. But yet, I am his treasured possession. And I am called to serve and mediate. Why should I not be excited? Why should I not be enthusiastic to share with people in whatever shape and form that looks like? It is fair to say that our identity is wrapped up in several aspects. There are many things that we we define. We're we're a melting pot. And the challenge is always to make sure that the primary ones are indeed primary. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 and 10 is a statement of who you are in Christ. You are a member of God's family. And so this is bigger than you. But you have value and, and importance in this community. You are loved and cherished as God's child. You are a holy priest committed to him in intimacy and in service. And you are a zealous proclaimer of how much you have received from him. These should be the defining building blocks of who you are. I want to close by asking us to consider this. We live in a world... Where there is issues or there is confusion about identity and gender. And it's not just with sex and sexuality, although that is the prominent argument at the moment. But we live in a world that is confused about identity. We also live, and this is my take on things, we also live in a church that is not reflecting the identity that God has intended for us. And I'm talking not churches in North Union. I'm talking church across the board. The church is not showing all of that. What would happen? I want you to think about this as we close on prayer. What would happen if people saw in the church community the genuine and authentic realization of, of that description? What would people say if they see living examples of people called and chosen, receiving of grace and mercy, serving as royal priesthoods, enjoying access to God, being distinct from the world, knowing that they are cherished and loved and desired by the God of all creation, and joyfully proclaiming that? How many people would struggle with their identity if they had to see that compelling picture? What would people think if they saw you becoming more like this? Let us pray. Father, we thank you that We stand in this place, or we sit in this place, or we are in this place not because of any worth of our own. We stand here before you because your grace, your mercy, your love, your work has brought us here. We are deeply grateful for what you have done through your Son Jesus for us, and we confess that we have not always responded in the way that we should. And we thank you that 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 doesn't nullify our status as your children, your cherished children, because your grace has covered all of our failings. We ask, Father, that you would impress upon us this picture. And we know that this is not the only definition or identity of who we are. We are also people in relationship with um, people in this world and with aspects of this world. But we do ask, Father, that you would cause us to see more and more and more that we are your people. And that we may do that from a place of community. That this, is, that this church is your people. Set aside from the world so that we may have access and intimacy with you. And share that with the world. Thank you, Father. Amen.